welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender non-conforming people, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. Sometimes you've got to get it right because otherwise people will fall through the gaps. Women with disabilities will fall through the gaps. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we look at COVID-19 vaccine access and inequality. We begin with an interview with Nadia Matiazu, Acting CEO of Women with Disabilities Victoria, about how the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is going for people with disabilities and what is stopping women with disabilities from accessing the vaccine. Then we speak with Deborah Gleeson, Associate Professor of Public Health at La Trobe University, about global vaccine inequality and the push to waive intellectual property rights to break the reliance on large pharmaceutical companies and allow low-income countries to make their own COVID-19 vaccines and medical products to fight the pandemic. First, this is Nadia Matiazo. My name is Nadia Matiazo. I'm Acting Chief Executive Officer of Women with Disabilities Victoria. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today, Nadia. So the roadmap for Victoria coming out of the current lockdown has now been released with an indicative date of 80% of people 16 and over vaccinated by November 5. But this 80% target is for the wider population. So how are vaccinations looking at the moment for people and especially women with disability? Um, Emma, it's inconsistent at best. So there's been a lot of work done around NDIS participants, so National Disability Insurance Scheme participants, in terms of supporting them to attend vaccinations. But as I said, it relates to NDIS participants. Does not or I cannot find data that talks about women who are ineligible for the NDIS or who have not yet engaged with the agency. So there are figures that are being spoken about from the Minister for Disability saying that from June 21, all NDIS participants aged 16 years and carers aged 16 years and over of NDIS participants became eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. From August 25, all NDIS participants aged 12 to 16 years became eligible for the COVID-19 vaccination. And yet at 30 August, 70% of NDIS participants in shared residential settings have received at least one dose of the vaccine, 56% receiving two doses, 50.6% of all NDIS participants over 16 years have received at least one dose of the vaccine with 32.1% receiving two doses. 62.5% of NDIS screened workers have received at least one dose of the vaccination with 43% receiving two doses. So this, again, and I'm reiterating this, this relates directly to NDIS participants. We have anecdotal evidence that that there does not seem to be a consistent approach regathering data around people with disabilities, specifically women with disabilities um, generally, 
So, for instance, some women with disabilities are asked to, to produce evidence that they have a disability um, so that they can uh, fall into the, obviously, the 1A or 1B category and be vaccinated. Others are not being asked at all. Um, we know that there have been people in group homes that have caught the virus and we know that some people have actually died as a result of, of the virus. But this information is not really at the fore of the media, for instance. So it's really, I've given you all that information. And in summary, I guess there's no consistency that I can see or that we have been alerted to. So many things there, Nadia. Uh, a lack of data in some senses for people who are not part of the NDIS, um, inconsistent approaches to quote unquote proving your disability um, and eligibility for vaccination. And also the figures you quoted are potentially quite alarming. At the end of last month, it sounds like looking at it being about halfway there yep. um, for people uh, who are broadly part of the NDIS and for staff as well, NDIS approved staff. So yep. It does seem quite different to the general figures that are quoted for the broader population. Yes. There's scientific evidence saying that people with disability face significantly greater risk of serious illness or death from COVID-19. And as a result, we did have the 1A and 1B tranches here in Australia um, to put people with disability at first in the queue for the vaccine mm. rollout. What are the barriers for, for people with disability and, again, especially women with disability who want to get vaccinated at the moment? What, why are these figures looking so different from the wider population when there's supposed to be a system in place? Yeah, from February this year, apparently, and it was supposed to be, you know, done fairly quickly and we still have all these outstanding or people who are still not and women who are not vaccinated. So finding somewhere to be vaccinated is, is a real dilemma for many women you know, the hotline number that people are being given to call. I'm sure I'm not the only one that says it's really busy. You're having to wait for often hours to get through. There is an assumption that everybody has technology, that everybody has a computer, that everybody has a smartphone, that the infrastructure to support that technology exists absolutely everywhere. So that, you know, if you can't get through on the hotline, you can go online you know, really easy and uh, firstly you can find a place to be vaccinated and secondly you can register, make an appointment. That is not the case. Some of our outreach work in regional areas, you know, there are blind spots in terms of infrastructure not far outside Warrnambool. We have women that live in that area who actually cannot access, you know, internet or it's poor access. So, you know, getting online, going through the process of finding where you need to go, then booking an appointment is a challenge. Women have often, and women with disabilities have often experienced unsatisfactory or bad interaction with health service providers, whether it be because the health service provider doesn't understand their access needs, doesn't understand their disability doesn't understand a woman with particular disabilities. So they've had negative experiences when accessing the health sector. It may be that they have developed a really good relationship with their local GP who may or may not be vaccinating. So if that GP is not vaccinating, you then have to go through the process of finding where you can go to get vaccinated trying to get there physically 
if you're living in a regional area, there's no public transport possibly. How do you get there? You have to rely on somebody else to get you there. In so doing, are you possibly exposing them to virus? Then getting physically into a place. So, for instance, if you have a vision impairment or, you know, you might be blind, learning somewhere new, going somewhere new in a stressful time when you're being vaccinated, building that, well, not really building a relationship with the people that that are vaccinating you because there's no time. Um, So, you know, allowing that interaction to happen and feeling comfortable about that interaction to happen, having information given to you in a format that you can understand. Um, I'm a blind person. I was given printed information. Mm. Totally useless, much, uh, <laughs> you know, okay. and, and I was asked to fill in a form. Fortunately, it was a place I was familiar with and they said, we will help you fill in the form. We can do that. But you know, what if you're not familiar? What if they're not familiar with you? You know, it's it's another issue. So, so many barriers. There are really specific asks from disability sector uh, organisations and people with disabilities around these problems. A coalition of more than 60 disability organisations released an open letter in August calling for the implementation of an 11-point plan for vaccinating people with disability across Australia. The first item on the plan is to release a clear public plan and timeframes on how the government will complete phases 1A and 1B of the vaccine rollout where are things up to now in relation to that? And is there data available? Well, the only data that I have, um, as I said, was the data that I quoted at the beginning of this interview. I have not seen any other data. So I'm presuming there is no other data. The data that I quoted was from the Minister for Disability and that was uh, released a couple of weeks ago. So that's all we can go on. And we don't know. We just don't know. You know, we've signed off Women with Disabilities Victoria was a signatory to this letter. I have not seen a response from government in relation to the 11-point plan and certainly I have not seen anything that resembles a plan on how uh, people with disabilities and or women with disabilities are fully vaccinated in a timely manner and receive all the information that everyone else without a disability gets and is as updated with the process as others are. Do you feel that the roadmap to opening up reflects the needs of people with disability? So I'm not sure I can comment on this only because the roadmap that I have seen is not accessible so um, that that's another that's another issue that I'm having. So um, the document itself does not it whilst it divides the different stages up and then at least everything underneath um, for me, I cannot discern which is stage A, B, C or D. So I'm sorry, but I really can't answer that question. And I think that speaks to the bigger issue of accessibility. Whilst I'm smiling, kind of when I'm saying this, I'm not sure if this this can hear that in my voice. It's just it's smiling hysterically because you know, I just can't understand that, you know, we're, we're talking about a significant sector of the community who need information in an accessible format, whether it be easy English, whether it be plain English, whether it be, um, you know, in, in, a, in an easy-to-read format electronically uh, for blind and vision-impaired people, and yet I have not seen that information. 
So we've spoken about how vaccination rates for people and women with disability are still really behind the general population despite the measures put in place. Um, And we've heard about accessibility, really serious accessibility issues around the vaccine rollout and also information from the government around uh, Mm -hmm. the roadmap for reopening, for example. In terms of practical support, if listeners have a disability and want support getting vaccinated, both here in Victoria and potentially further afield, what is the best thing for them to do? So I don't want to start this conversation off in a negative way, but there is no consistent approach. As I said before, you know, if you call the hotline, it's really busy. You don't always have the technology to go online and access the process online. I know from my experience, what I did was I contacted my local GP because that was one of the things that I was told I should do. They told me they were not vaccinating and they could not tell me where I should go to get vaccinated. They said call the hotline. They said, you know, you will just have to wait and find somewhere that that is vaccinating. When I did call somewhere um, and I found somewhere, I actually went online and was able to, after a little bit of mucking around, use the access checker to A, that I was accessible as as a Category 1A or 1B um, person and then find somewhere that I could go to be vaccinated. And this was earlier in the year. I was told I'd have to wait for three months because Mm -hmm. they were not taking people that were not known to them. They didn't have the vaccines available. That may have changed now, and I suspect that has to some extent. I also suspect with the new Moderna uh, vaccination where pharmacists will be able to vaccinate, people may find it, women may find it a little bit easier to, to go and get vaccinated. There is just no coordinated approach and that's what makes it really hard. If you are engaging with a disability advocacy organisation or uh, an organisation that may be doing some work in this space, I would have a chat to them as well to seek some advice in terms of where a person can go to get more information. But the process is so inconsistent. It's really stressful. And I think a lot of women with disabilities are saying, it's not that I don't want to be vaccinated. It's just that the process makes my head spin and it stresses me out and I don't know what to do. You know, it'd be ideal if there was a consistent approach to having being able to be vaccinated at home. Some states are doing it. Some areas in some states are doing it. Other states are not doing it. You know, why not? (laughs) I I just don't understand. And on those things you've just touched on, I see in the 11-point plan, um, item four is a request to create a dedicated and fully accessible vaccination booking system for all Mm. people with disability and their supporters. And um, item 11... Uh, at the end there is to track the use of Medicare flagfall arrangements to provide a call-out service to people with disabilities so people can be vaccinated in their place of residence. Correct. Um, Sounds so simple, doesn't it? (laughs) Yet, you know, it's not happening. I mean, I guess everything is so fluid. There is such a movable space. So I can totally understand that things have to be implemented. But if you're implementing categories, for eligibility, before you implement those categories, surely you would have infrastructure in place to support that implementation. And if not, why not? Women on the Line, 
on community radio around Australia. You're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard an interview with Nadia Matiazzo, Acting CEO of Women with Disabilities Victoria, about vaccine access for women with disability. For more information, you can visit wdv.org.au. Next, we speak with Deborah Gleeson about global vaccine inequality. I'm Associate Professor in Public Health, Deborah Gleeson from La Trobe University. Thanks for joining us on the program. So as Australia wrestles with its own COVID-19 vaccine rollout, a discussion about global vaccine inequality has not necessarily been front and centre. So for listeners who might not be aware, what is the current situation with COVID-19 vaccine inequality globally? Well, the inequalities in access to COVID-19 vaccines have been really stark and have actually been getting starker, even though it may seem to people in Australia that we're getting um, better access to um, to supplies of vaccines and that the um, you know that there's a lot of vaccines being produced. Um, so by November last year. Um, a handful of rich countries had slurped up most of the global supply of vaccines um, pretty much through to the end of, um, of 2021 and leaving very little for low and middle income countries. Um, COVAX, the global program for distributing vaccines equitably, was intending to deliver 2 billion doses of vaccine by the end of 2021 and 92 developing countries are pretty much reliant on COVAX for their supply of vaccines. They're not able to afford to go and negotiate directly with the pharmaceutical companies to purchase doses. They're relying on um, rich countries making donations through COVAX um, um, with vaccines. So far, COVAX has been able to deliver less than 300 million um, of its planned 2 billion doses a vaccine, and just recently, it, Covax actually revised its forecast to only 1.4 billion doses during 2021. That might sound like quite a lot, but actually, um, you know, we need 11 billion doses to be able to vaccinate a significant proportion of the world's population. So, just a tiny proportion available there of what's needed. Yeah, and less than 20% of the doses that have been administered so far have gone to low and middle income countries while high-income countries have, um, on average, administered 100 doses for each 100 people, low-income countries, like um, countries in Africa, for example, have only managed 1.5 doses for every 100 people. So the gap is, is getting wider and wider at the moment um, between high-income countries and low-income countries in terms of the vaccination rate. And that could even widen further with um, many rich countries, even including Australia, starting to plan now for booster shots in 2022 and um, starting to stockpile and, and order additional doses um, to provide the, that third dose um, to some or all of their populations. Those numbers paint a, quite a stark and bleak picture um, of access to COVID-19 vaccines across the globe. So uh, moving on from that, Australia has recently joined other members of the World Trade Organization in backing a waiver of the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights or TRIPS agreement uh, in relation to COVID-19 medical products. So what is the TRIPS agreement and why is this significant? So the TRIPS agreement 
is the global agreement under the World Trade Organization that governs intellectual property rights, which include things like patents. So um, patent protection is given to new inventions for a period of at least 20 years under the TRIPS agreement. And there are other intellectual property rights as well, such as copyright, um, protection for trade secrets, which can be about production processes and things like that. So a kind of a whole slew of intellectual property rights um, sit under this um, trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights agreement or TRIPS. And all of the member states of the World Trade Organization, um, through their membership of the, the, the WTO, agree to sort of uphold the, the, the standards in the TRIPS agreement. But these rules make it really difficult or even impossible for developing countries to actually provide COVID-19 medical products, even in situations where they would otherwise be able to manufacture them. Um, so, you know, TRIPS provides that, that patent protection for, um, for new pharmaceutical products, including vaccines, and um, also protection for the the detailed information about the production processes, which is really important um, in terms of vaccine manufacturing. And although the TRIPS agreement provides for what we call compulsory licences, which is sort of exemptions from patent protection, these exemptions are really quite onerous and time-consuming to use, and they can only be used on a sort of case-by-case -case or country-by-country basis and they only apply to patents and not the, the rights to the information about the manufacturing process. So last year in October, India and South Africa put a proposal to the World Trade Organization that these rules be waived for COVID-19 medical products for the duration of the pandemic. So this would apply to COVID-19 vaccines, um, treatments, diagnostic tests and devices that might be needed to fight the pandemic. So the TRIPS waiver, as it's called, would be really important in terms of freeing up the intellectual property rights and enabling wider scale manufacturing of things like vaccines and, and monoclonal antibody treatments, which are becoming more and more important for COVID-19, so that developing countries, which already have a lot of manufacturing um, factories which could be producing these vaccines would enable the, the sort of scaling up and, and wider um, provision of these vaccines. And the TRIPS waiver would also help companies that are actually doing the research and development for new vaccines and treatments by making it much easier for them to be able to proceed with research and development without having to navigate a legal maze because a lot of the raw ingredients, the technology platforms and things like that can be covered by a lot of patents and, and other intellectual property rights. So it would really speed up the development of new products as well as enabling wider scale manufacturing of the products that we already have. So I understand that uh, even, even though the call for a TRIPS waiver was put out by India and South Africa almost a year ago now, um, the United States joined in May and it, it's now September. So why why do you think it has taken Australia so long to, to put our weight behind this particular waiver when it seems so important? 
That's a really good question, Emma. Since India and South Africa put the proposal to the WTO in October last year, more than 100 members of the WTO, which currently has 164 members, have moved to support the proposal. And it's now actually co-sponsored by more than 60 members of the WTO. The US was initially opposed to it, but in May, Joe Biden made the very surprising uh, announcement that the US would support a waiver for vaccines. But there are some still some rich countries that are digging in and refusing to support it, particularly Germany, the UK and Switzerland now. So Australia seemed to be sitting on the fence until just a couple of weeks ago when it began to actually support the waiver, which has been a move that's been really applauded by health and humanitarian organisations who've been pushing the Australian government to move in that direction. It would be great to see Australia actually formally co-sponsoring the proposal and also working on trying to convince the, the countries that are still holding out to actually put their support behind it as well. In terms of the countries that are still holding out, is it just about money, Deborah? What's some of the reasons why a country might not support something that seems so vital? So the countries that haven't been supporting it are countries where they do have a a significant sized pharmaceutical or biopharmaceutical industry that, you know, depends on intellectual property rights to, to generate profits. So I think that's why we're seeing countries like Germany, Switzerland and the UK being the kind of last holdouts on on this proposal. And, you know, they're trying to protect their pharmaceutical industries, which are a big part of their economies. But I think what a lot of people don't realise is that these companies are actually generating uh, a huge amount of revenue from sales of these products. For example, Pfizer is expecting to bring in about $33.5 billion in revenue just this year through sales of its COVID-19 vaccine. So the pharmaceutical industry in many of these countries is, is a very powerful lobby group. And, you know, a lot of these countries, even including the US, have sought strong intellectual property rights, not just in their own countries, but from other countries. It was really quite a groundbreaking shift for the US to start supporting this proposal because it has been one of the main countries that has pressed for strong intellectual property rights in the past. What will the TRIPS waiver need to go through? Uh, where, where are things headed from here? The World Trade Organisation generally makes decisions through consensus decision-making. So there is quite a strong you know, amount of pressure being put on the remaining countries to support the TRIPS waiver. There are some circumstances where voting can be used, but that's by exception rather than the the general rule and would require uh, at least 75% of member states to support a vote in order to move to that mechanism. It has been, you know, nearly 12 months since this proposal was put forward and large numbers of people have have died from COVID-19 since then. So it's really important that countries that have decided to support the waiver, like Australia, are really pushing forward to reach a conclusion on this issue and get some action at the WTO. And there'll be a number of meetings over the next few weeks where this proposal will be discussed. At the moment, of course, our Prime Minister is over in the US and, you know, has has an opportunity to be working with 
President Biden's initiatives. There's a vaccine summit that's going to be held and there's a meeting with the US, India and Japan on September the 24th, where Australia could really be taking a leadership role in trying to, to move this initiative forward. Sounds very important. Um, there is the World Trade Organization route. I mean, could Pfizer and Moderna, for example, just give vaccines to low and middle income countries? Well, donations of vaccines are, are a really important part of the picture. And certainly there's a lot more that could be done in that respect, not just directly from the pharmaceutical companies, but also from countries that have more doses than they need. And it will certainly be important for Australia to continue production of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is being produced by CSL in, in Melbourne, well past the time where there's a demand for that in Australia in order to keep the global supply going of, of that vaccine and, and continue to donate that through COVAX to other countries. So there's certainly a lot more that can be done, but donations won't be enough to really um, meet the global demand for vaccines. And that's why it's really important that rich countries actually invest in freeing up the intellectual property rights to enable more wide-scale manufacturing and actually push the pharmaceutical industry to share its technology, to share its know-how with other companies, many of which are established vaccine manufacturers, established pharmaceutical companies that have been making safe and effective pharmaceutical products for a long time so that the supply can be adequate and can be ramped up quickly enough that we can actually vaccinate the world in time to get on top of this pandemic. Because of course, if we have large proportions of the population in countries like Australia vaccinated and even getting booster doses before we've even vaccinated health workers and vulnerable groups in low and middle income countries, then we're going to see not just humanitarian crises in those countries, but also we risk having variants emerge that are less amenable to vaccines and can put the whole world's progress at risk in terms of getting on top of this pandemic. And so it's an issue that we all need to think about. It's not enough just to focus on boosting the vaccination rate within Australia. You were just listening to an interview with Deborah Gleeson, Associate Professor of Public Health at La Trobe University, about global vaccine inequality. For more information or to take action to support vaccine access, you can visit the website of the Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network at aftinet.org.au or search for Amnesty International's Vaccines for Low-Income Countries campaign. Earlier in the program, you heard an interview with Nadia Matiazzo from Women with Disabilities Victoria about how the COVID-19 vaccine rollout is going for people with disability and barriers to vaccination for women with disability. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender non-conforming people. This program was produced in Nam, Melbourne, with the amazing support of 3CR staff. A big thank you to them. Women on the Line is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.